You have a Bible, if you would, open it up to Luke chapter 7. And uh, the last little narrative of that chapter, starting in verse 36, very, 36, very familiar text for us um, is what we're going through today. So Luke chapter 7. Uh, because of last week, we kind of took a break in our series. The series were called Love Walked Among Us. Uh, so today it might feel like we're starting all over again, and I suppose that's okay too. But we stole that title, title Love Walked Among Wait a minute, we didn't steal. We borrowed that title. Christ, Christians don't steal. Um, we borrowed that title from the book of Paul Miller of the same name, Love Walked Among Us. Um, and I understand that a lot of you have purchased that book. It sort of serves as a commentary, not in order of any particular book, but a, a commentary over certain narratives that you experience the love of Christ in. So if you want to add it to your reading and your study time, it'd be a great resource, I think, among the many other places that you can resource. We still have many in the bookstore. There's still some, I, I think they still had a rack of them at the cafe counter, um, and you can make your way over to the, the comments to pick that up. But let me just be clear about something. We are not preaching the book. Uh, I know it might seem like it. The only thing I'm borrowing is the title. In fact, I just took his book and pushed it off to the side. I'm assuming you can read, and then if you want to read that, that might be helpful. But what we are trying to do is preach to the narratives of a few encounters with Jesus that describe for us who Jesus is and how Jesus loved. If you want the grand narrative of what you're going to experience over the next three months, it's us trying to lean into the love of Christ. Now, he demonstrated that, and clearly we're trying to, to be like him as well, so... It could be said, and uh, maybe it's just me, but, but I think one of, the, one of, if not the most compelling thing about Jesus is the way he loved people. I mean, it's just somewhat magnetic. It could also be said that the uh, most difficult action in all the world is to love like Jesus. One, you have something very winsome and magnetic, and the other thing so impossible, seeming impossible to accomplish in our life. Nothing is more winsome then when you open the scriptures and you see the accounts of the way he runs into troubled lives and broken people and just loves in radical ways and to see it in action is, is amazing and it's convicting. Jesus never had a bad day, never took a day off, never had a selfish motive, never, never did things for insecure reasons, never had a deficiency in how he loved. Perfection, perfection in love. And so it's convicting when he's been... He's calling us to love like he did. So I, I have to confess, even in my reading of, of Paul Miller's book, I was, I'm frustrated by the illustrations. Because every illustration ends up with an example of how to do it like I can't, it seems. Like it's an experience of my failure. Like, oh, wow, I screwed that one up too. Oh, I don't know how to do that one. I didn't see that one coming. So it's like this perpetual, endless, like you're terrible experience for me. Um, and it's because I'm not that loving. I understand that. I want to be, but if I'm honest, it's a, it's, it's a fight for me. Um, so if, if this subject matter that we're in for three months, this subject of loving like Christ, feels like I've given you a pile of sand to hold on to and not drop, <laughs> and it's leaking through your hands, I think you're, you're now familiar with what's normal. I really think whenever we describe the personhood of Christ, and the ways in which he did things in his amazing state and our attempts to be like him, well, it's good, but we're always going to go, man, I'm missing the mark there. Now, hear me. I'm not saying that because it's difficult to do that we shouldn't strive for it or fight for it or study for it 
or pray for. We, we are not tapping out just because it's hard. We're just confessing that it's a challenge, right? It's difficult. Um, this, this whole journey for us is, is our attempt to try to be conformed to the image of Christ. But I think the way it's going to work best, to be honest with you, if we're going to sit under the teaching of God's word, and it starts with an admission that we're not there. If anybody comes to the table and suggests for a second, even in their own quiet, private thoughts, that it isn't their problem, it isn't their issue, it isn't their work to be done, we're going to miss the whole shooting match. Everybody in this room falls short of that wonderful example of love. And that's why we want to talk about it for the next three months. And hopefully after that amount of time, that much saturation, that we will be shaped more and more into the image of Jesus. And I want to give you another warning, by the way, too. I swear to you this is going to be uncomfortable. Not because I have it on my agenda list, like make them uncomfortable. That's not the game plan. There's just no way to talk about it without feeling uncomfortable. We are going to find our pride and our insecurities we're going to find our self-righteousness. We're going to find all the things that get in the way of the very beautiful picture that we were won over to in the first place. The stuff is in us. So, um, and here's the other reality. And you're going to be surprised by all the discoveries. No one I know as a Christian says, yeah, I know I'm supposed to love like Jesus, but I don't care. I don't want to. No one says that. No one even believes that. They go, yeah, I should. So watch, watch what's going to happen. When we unpack example after example after example of the love of Christ, somewhere the Holy Spirit's going to go, and it's you. And you do this. And you won't do that. And you have a thousand reasons why you're the excuse to this behavior. It does it to me. So I'm just saying, I'm assuming we're all going to be caught somewhere in this discussion about where I'm deficient or where I won't. But I know this that God is committed to forming me into the image of Jesus. The Holy Spirit has empowered that action to see it through fruition, ultimately in glory, but ever more so even now. So let's, let's stop and ask for his presence in this so that we can truly learn what he has for us. God, I do thank you that um, these things that look like Mount Everest to us are nothing to you. You do this work. You have done this work in the hearts of men. You transform them, you shape them, you make them like Jesus. So Lord, in this discussion about how Jesus loved, we ask that you uh, make us like Jesus. God, don't, uh, don't let us just sleep through this. Help us find that conviction in those places where we have uh, reluctantly held on to um, indifference, and God, ultimately, we really want to be a place that if people came here, they would see Jesus. So we pray for the Spirit's power in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let me, let's read this. We're going to start in verse 36 all the way to the end of the chapter. Very familiar story um, you should be comfortable with. Here, here it goes. Verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. 
A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Now go in peace. Uh, let, let me clear up a possible confusion. This story has been preached a thousand times, very familiar because of its beauty and the story it tells. But there's, there's other places in the, in the narrative of the gospel where you see something similar. I just want to make certain we're on the right track. There's a story at the end of Jesus' life and ministry where he's at Mary's house. Mary performs this same kind of action. Mary, the sister of Martha, the sister of Lazarus. Remember this? And they're at a, at a house of, of a guy who's got the same name, Simon. And she anoints Jesus' feet. Mary does. And so you might confuse the end of his life at the beginning. That's not at all the case. This is Simon the Pharisee, not Simon the leper. This is in Galilee, not Bethany. And this is in the beginning of his ministry, not the end, although it sounds very familiar. And both of those narratives tell a different story, tell a different message, preach a different sermon. So I want to make certain we're in the right, right particular memory for, for our time today. Um, I want, you, I want to set this up, and, and I want you to notice how intentional Jesus is here. Um, as always, Jesus is focused on the lost. In chapter 19 of Luke, he runs into another man named Zacchaeus. We all have heard that in Sunday school. And he said to Zacchaeus that the, that, uh, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. There you have it, the mission. The reason why God took on flesh and came to this earth is to seek after lost people. Now, what's a particular truth in this story is that there's two kinds of lost people. There are lost people who know they're lost, and there are lost people who don't. And in this situation, you have the woman who knows she's lost, and you have Simon who has no clue. And yet, they both need saving. And yet, the gospel is for both, and that's why we'll find them here in this wonderful, poignant story of Jesus coming to seek and save the lost. There's another thing I want you to notice, and that is that if you've been in church a long time, if you've sat under teaching, you've probably heard this taught, and in most time it's discussed, it's the woman who gets discussed as kind of the focal point of the story. And, and no doubt she's a big part of this, a big powerful part of this. I mean, you can't get away from the beauty of her worship and the, and the wonderful way in which she responds to the Savior. Um, but I want you to see that Jesus' focus isn't really the woman. It's Simon. In fact, I would suggest to you that the woman simply is a living sermon for Simon's sake. And, and therein lies the kind of the, the picture that's playing out for us. Did Jesus consider both? Of course he did, and we, we can learn from both. But we'll see that Simon needed way more help than the woman did in this particular narrative. Verse 36, it starts out, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. Sounds so great, doesn't it? What a great way to start a day. 
sounds kind, it sounds welcoming and courteous, but I want you to know, I believe, that Simon had no interest in Jesus whatsoever. This wasn't a kind act on Simon's part. I believe he'd already made up his mind on Jesus, like all the religious elite of that day. In fact, I think why he came and why he invited Jesus to his house was to just continue more reconnaissance and to gather more information that could bring charges against Jesus. I mean, that's where this is going. We all know that. Um, the religious establishment, um, you're, I'm certain you know this, hated Jesus. They hated his message. Nobody hates the message of grace more than Pharisees. And I use that more as a description of a type of heart than a person. Pharisees, people who think they've merited something with God, worked hard, been religious, got, crossed the T's and dotted the I's, those people. Nobody hates somebody talking about free grace than people who've worked their tail off to see that God would find them approvable. So they hated that. They hated the, the message of repentance that he taught. He, they hated the forgiveness he granted so freely. Um, Jesus was in the habit of rebuking them for their sin. They hated that, and they hated who he hung out with. He always hung around with messy people. And Pharisees don't do that either. Well, we'll talk about Simon more in just a minute, but let's take a section in a moment and just stop and talk about the woman. Um, Luke introduces her uh, in verse 37 with a sense of shock. Now, when you pick up your ESV, your uh, scripture, it says, and behold, but it, it's got way more punch to it than that. It was kind of like, lo and behold. Now, that's even an old phrase, but it'd be like in our modern language, like, wow, did you see that? That's what Luke is writing here because something is happening that's so shocking that you have to tell the story and you're kind of in disbelief as you tell it because it just wouldn't happen this way in your mind. We're about to find out what is so shocking about this woman. Uh, who she was is shocking. Where she was was shocking, and what she was doing was shocking. Luke tells us who she was in verse 39. He calls her a woman in the city who was a sinner. Now, um, most people would agree that when Luke calls her as a, a sinner, he's talking about a reputation, a notorious sinner, a well-known sinner, a, a sinner to such a degree that the community would know she's a sinner. I think it's one of the loving things Luke did by not naming her because everybody would have known. She's a sinner. And most writers would suggest the kind of sinner she is is she's a prostitute. She sells herself. That's what she's known for. Um, what's also shocking is, is uh, she shows up in a Pharisee's house. Like she just wanders into a religious leader's home. That seems out of place. And another thing is, is to be fair, to our American sense of privacy, like can you just imagine throwing a dinner party with somebody and the doors are open and some woman of the street walks in? Like you would freak out, as you should, all right? Because this is weird. The whole thing is, is not how it works for us. Um, let, let me describe what's going on here. The whole thing seems weird to our sense of privacy, but let me describe to you the culture and maybe it'll not be so so weird. First of all, if you were a person of wealth or well-to-do, the way you built your home was kind of like a, a center courtyard with, with um, dwelling around it. And the, the center courtyard was a place where you would hold dinner parties or public functions or whatever. So just now picture like the center courtyard um, that, that is common for everybody to use. And when they held these dinner parties, they'd leave the outer doors open. 
Because what was normal and acceptable and appropriate that day was for people of the city just to wander in and out of your dinner party, to observe what you're doing and what you're talking about. It was common culture. Um, and I can understand even, even more so when you consider why someone would want to just come in and eavesdrop on a dinner party because after all, the rabbi is in town. And maybe, maybe he'll talk about politics. Maybe he'll talk about Rome or social issues. Maybe he'll talk about religion or maybe he'll scratch my itch. Maybe, right? So everyone just kind of onlookers would just wander in off the street and roam around the circle of this dinner and gather whatever they wanted. They'd wander out. It was just kind of that way. Weird to us, but totally normal to them. And it's in that environment that she begins to do ridiculous things. Shocking thing. Shocking to us, even if I define it to you. Um, so, so let me just paint the picture. I want it to be cemented in your head, this scene. This wealthy man's home with the inner courtyard. These people that are invited, mainly Jesus and Simon the Pharisee, having dinner together. And the way they would eat would be at a low table, and they would recline on their left elbow and eat with their right, but their feet would be all pointing away from the center. So kind of belly, up, belly down, kind of eating at the center, right? And the obvious reasons, there's some real practical reasons, so the dust of the street, the sandals, you don't want your feet next to the food, so as far away as you can get them, right? And then you're kind of really leaning into the person that's, that's talking. In fact, this is how it looks, uh, verse 37. And behold, a woman who is a sinner, she learned that he was reclining at the table in that posture, she brought this alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair, the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who, who and what sort of woman this is and who's touching him for she's a sinner. Now, let me ask you a question. Can you blame Simon? I can't. That's probably what I would think. Whoa, whoa, this thing just went off the rails. Like, it's one thing to have the door open and people wandering, but her come in and then her doing what she's doing, the whole thing's creepy. It's weirded me out. Um, what would you think of a street girl walking into your dinner party? You're sort of getting how weird it is. And by the way, this hair thing is bad. It's really bad. The Talmud, which is kind of the written, the oral instruction of, of Jewish law, said that a husband could divorce his wife if she should dare let her hair down in public. It was the equivalent of burying yourself naked. That's the culture. So now watch. Now let's just get creeped out even more. This woman, known, notorious, everyone knows her, walks in and she starts disrobing in their mind in front of Jesus. And she starts weeping and crying over his feet. And she's using her hair in a very demeaning way. And she's kissing him. And the text doesn't say, like, we're done. Wouldn't stop. Wouldn't stop. Just kept kissing her. Now, poured perfume over his feet. When you picture this, if it's in your mind, does it make you uncomfortable at all? It does me if I'm honest. In fact, I said at the Preaching Collective, if any one of us pastors had a woman come in so grateful that somehow God reached her through some puny word we said and was kissing our feet and pouring stuff, I mean, we'd be thrown in the clinker. And, and here's why. Because we're suspicious. Jesus isn't. Um, 
this whole scene is very private, it feels to me. Very intimate. Like if, if, if someone told me that happened behind closed doors, I go, well, at least that's where it should happen. But I understand why this moment created, created and raised suspicion in people's mind. Now look at Simon in verse 39. Again, if this man were a prophet, if he was, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. Now let me walk you through Simon's logic, and you're going to be sympathetic with this too. He simply says, okay, if Jesus is a prophet that he declares himself to be, then it would be a piece of cake for him to know exactly who she is. Everyone knows who she is. Like 101 of prophet is to know who she is. If he was, he would know. And if he knew she was who she was, that she was a prostitute, conclusion, he'd have nothing to do with her. Now here we are into the where he's wrong part. He was right on the first thought. If he was a prophet, he would know. He's wrong at the second part that he would have nothing to do with her. And yet, that's the kind of flow of his logic. And then he would go on and say, well, since, since Jesus accepts her, then he must not know her. And, and if, if he doesn't know her, then he can't be a prophet. And if he's not a prophet, I don't have to listen to him. He has no authority. His words mean nothing. He's as lost as a broken clock. He's one of the many who have come and the many who will come after him. He is nobody to me. It's the way people want to shut Jesus up. They want to look at something he did and say, well, that isn't right. A, a real God wouldn't do that. Simon is just simply trying to marginalize Jesus walking through. Well, if he knew, he'd behave like me. He didn't behave like me, so he's not as good as I am. That means he's nobody to listen to. Just write him off. You get the logic? And by the way, let me just suggest to you, of all the things Simon could have said about this situation, this was at least the best one. Because he could have said, okay, this is really creepy. I'm going to accuse Jesus of something weird happening behind the closed door. I mean, they're way too affectionate for, for me. But he goes to the best possible case scenario and simply concludes that Jesus doesn't know anything. He's ignorant. He just doesn't know. That's his problem. Not that he has intention, which I think I appreciate. At least he went there. Um, and all of this, Simon is storing away in his mind to bring charges against Jesus with many other Pharisees. Like, this is another one of those things. Now, obviously, Simon was wrong because Jesus does know this woman's sin. Back to verse 47, he says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, which are many, I know, I know. And let's just make it even more poignant and powerful what Jesus knows. And by the way, Simon, I know what you're thinking too. You didn't say it, but I know. Verse 42, or 40 to 42. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? This parable, familiar parable, was Jesus' way of moving after Simon, who at this point in the story still thinks he's above all this. He's clearly above the woman, and he's got way more, way more capacity than Jesus. And so Jesus tells this story to try to get him close to what he needs most. So, when most people hear this parable, this short little two-sentence story that Jesus tells, we see it reasonably so through the lens of uh, comparing debt, contrasting debt. 500 denarii, 50 denarii. Denarii is the equivalent of one day's pay. So 500 days pay, year and a half of your life, pretty, pretty a lot of money. 
or 50 days, still a lot of money. But basically, we see it through the lens. Okay, one, one person's mountain is huge in debt, and another person's is, is big, but maybe payable. And that's not at all what Jesus says. I would suggest to you that the thrust of this parable isn't the quantity of debt. It is one little phrase in the middle of this story, verse 42. When they, here's the phrase, could not pay. And here's what you want to understand. There are people in this room who, when you would assess your own life, go, mine's the mountain. Man, you 500 days debt? Oh, my gosh. I've got decades. And some of us might consider yourself to be pretty good. And you're just a couple weeks of debt. But the point of the story that Jesus makes is both of their bankruptcy, not the quantity of their debt. The bottom line is if you can't pay, you can't pay. It just doesn't matter. When you have nothing to resolve the problem, it really doesn't matter how big the problem is, does it? So when it comes to sin, if we're all dead in our transgressions and sins, if all of us are debtors to God, if we deserve his punishment for my rebellion against him, does it really matter how big your hill is? That's his point. All, all are bankrupt. All have sinned, Paul says, and fall short of the glory of God. However, in this particular scene, the, the scene of this sinful known woman worshiping Jesus confuses Simon, I believe. And so Jesus tells this story to try to help him see. And he simply says to Simon, Simon, which debtor loves the money lender more? The answer is obvious. Simon even had a hard time not choking on those words because he said, I suppose the one with the most debt. Of course you suppose. There's no other option. Yes, of course that's right. Now, I want you to see the beginning of verse 44, how this entire moment changes. And then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Now, let me just get us back in that courtyard. We're in the courtyard. And whoever is around the outside, I don't know. But the woman is there at the feet of Jesus. And at this point, Jesus has been leaning on his left elbow, having dinner, looking Simon in the eye, having a conversation. And something happens here in verse 44. It simply says he gets up and he turns his back on Simon and he looks at the woman while he's still talking to Simon. You got the picture? And he simply says to Simon behind him now, Simon, do you see this woman? Because I do. And you spend all your time comparing yourself to her. Let me do it for you. What's normal and appropriate in that culture when a visitor would come to dinner um, would be a kiss of peace. You would just greet them with a kiss of peace. And obviously because of the road dirt on their sandaled feet, they would wash their feet. And then a drop of oil, probably a, 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 a little bit of fragrance in it for the simple reason of kind of making this whole dinner party uh, somewhat more enjoyable. And Simon, if you remember, started this whole evening with animosity towards Jesus because he did none of that. Every possible way he could welcome the Savior, he chose not to welcome the Savior because he had already made his mind up about Jesus. Jesus said to him, however, what you refuse to do, this woman has gone overboard. All she's doing is giving me the kiss of peace. All she's doing is anointing me. All she's doing is wetting my feet with her tears and wiping them with her hair. And Simon, do you want to know why? Because she's a sinner. 
And I can't even begin to communicate what that phrase in her life, as I picture it, would be like. The guilt and the shame, I'm her. When the city talks about her, it's me. And I've known all these men, and I've gone all these places, and I've done all these things, and it's my reputation. It's who I am. I've got this mountain, mountain of weight and guilt and shame over me. And then she experiences the perfect life-altering forgiveness of God. So it's as if Jesus looks at Simon and says, okay, Simon, does it make sense now? Does her actions make sense? Jesus says, therefore I tell you, verse 47, her sins which are many are forgiven for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. It's really important here, the, the word in verse 47, when Jesus says, I tell you her sins which are many are forgiven. People have made the mistake of, of saying her actions equaled forgiveness, meaning, meaning her expression of devotion and love and worship, kissing his feet and the sacrificial gift of this expensive ointment and the whole thing was like, okay, now Jesus knows that she's worth saving or she's done enough to be valuable and so Jesus now says, oh, because of you've done this, I'm gonna grant you forgiveness. That's not at all what's happening here. The word are is, is better said have been. That's kind of the, what's going on here. It's a, this might be too much, too much language work, but I think it helps us. The word are is a perfect tense verb, which refers to a completed action with continuing results in the present. In other words, she was already saved. She was just showing up for worship. God had already done something. Now, she had already received God's forgiveness. Her actions didn't bring it about. And so she shows up to express it. I, if you read back in Luke's narrative, you will find multiple places where Luke says where Jesus was. I wonder, chapter five, verse one, if, if she was uh, one of the crowds that Luke mentions in chapter five. Or possibly in chapter six, was she in the cities where Jesus had roamed to to minister? Or possibly the multitudes that gathered to hear him? Somewhere. And I'm almost picturing this. I mean, just like she walks into the Pharisee's house, kind of on her knees, in the back, on the floor, kind of no one saw her coming. I can picture in these multitudes, the one with the reputation, the one with the scars and the pile, and she would hear the message of forgiveness from the very back of the building. And God got her. He offered her forgiveness, and by faith she trusted in Christ, and she walked free, and she worshiped. She worshiped it. Somewhere she had wandered into the divine appointment of God's forgiveness. Somewhere. Somewhere she was on time. God was doing it and uh, transformed her and it wrecked her. She couldn't help herself. Wrecked her in the best sense of the word. And she falls down to worship. In, in a picture that the church has used forever is this radical depiction of devotion. And so Simon asks, or Jesus asks Simon a question that I want to ask us before we leave here today. Do you see the woman? Do you? I think there's an implied question in here that's not written, but I think it's obvious. Do you see yourself? Do you? 
Because if you do, there are lessons that are inescapable for us. Let me, let me give you a handful of them. Jesus only saves sinners. Only. In fact, I would just say it maybe another way. If you don't think you need saving, you can have what you want. He only saves sinners. He doesn't offer helpful input to people who need questions answered. That's not what he does. And if you're bored, he's not the one who brings excitement. That's not what he does. And if you want tips to healthy living and life, he doesn't do that either. He brings life to dead people, and that's it. He transforms the whole broken, dead, transgressing heart of man into a heart that beats for God. That's what he does. He came to seek and save the lost, the lost who are dead in their sins. He only saves sinners. And here's what we know, here's what we confess, here's what we say all the time. And we're all sinners. I guess the only difference between what Jesus offers in that statement is you saying, I'm one of them. Which in this case, we don't know anything about the finish line for Simon, but let's say this is all we have. At this point, Simon doesn't think it applies to him. Which, by the way, is the dumbest decision in human history. We're all sinners. We know that. Let me suggest to you another lesson in this narrative, and that is that there is no hole too deep for God to reach. I don't know if you've been paying attention to the news the last couple of weeks, but there was a, a small boy, two-year-old boy, who fell into a, a, a drill hole in Spain. It was uh, 328 feet deep, and he fell to the bottom. Hole that big. And they have spent the last two weeks trying to get to him. They couldn't. And I use that, even though that's gory, I use that as a depiction of kind of us, like us. Every one of us in here have a version of a hole we've dug. And they're all at different depths. Some of them you couldn't even get to the bottom. And every man-made attempt, man, I'll fix it, I'll get to it, I'll solve it, I'll pull myself up, and it doesn't work that way. You can't, you can't rescue. Man doesn't have the ability to rescue himself from the pit. But here's what I'm trying to tell you. There is no hole that God can't get to the bottom of it. So if you're sitting here today and go, man, that woman's story, I'd love to have that woman's story because mine's worse. You haven't gone too far. You're not out of reach. There is no sin unforgivable. There is no struggle that is unforgivable. There is no place that you've been, no thing that you've done that God is gonna go, oh, I can't see, I can't look, I can't save. Jesus can reach to the deepest parts. You see this woman's story and she's just a train wreck. I can't, even, I can't even describe the amount of reputation and problems and whatever. I could imagine, even in that very room where she's worshiping Jesus, men who have abused her or used her are in that room of places where she's given herself away and yet the love of Christ can get to the bottom of that heart. So, there is no failure too great. Let me give you another lesson. Don't get God's love out of order. Some have read this text only to conclude that if you do something for God, well, then God owes you something. That's not what's going on here. First John 4, you finish it. We love him because he first loved us. That's it. The only reason you can say Jesus, the only reason you can say I love him, the only reason you can say I worship him is because he first loved 
you, his action towards you. Ephesians 2, by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. The woman's radical expression of worship, (laughs) this unbelievable gratitude is the good work that Jesus had planned for her to walk in. That's an amazing truth, an amazing story, just like everyone here who knows Christ. We understand that our life and our service and our worship and our confession, all it is is the overflow of the transforming work of God's Spirit to make us like Jesus. That's what it is. You are earning nothing by your behavior. You are earning nothing by your worship and devotion. You are simply expressing your gratitude for what God has done. Does that make sense? Romans 8 says that God shows his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that's the narrative we've got to hold on to. Therefore, the conclusion is that love that obeys and love that emulates Christ, all the things we ever talk about, every punchline we ever give in a sermon, is the only expression we have for what God has done for us. We're not suggesting that you're adding to your way to God. We're simply saying that is what people of grateful hearts do. We love him, simple as it can be. I'm glad it's simple because I wouldn't get it if it wasn't. We love him with everything we have and we love other people. There's the great commandment. We love them, love our neighbor as ourself and they go together. I wonder though, to be honest with you, how much it grieves God that those he loves so much spend way too much of their time loving a debate on who their neighbor is as opposed to actually loving somebody. And in our culture, the the war is on. And it's sad, I just gotta believe it grieves Jesus that the church is involved in deciding who they're supposed to love as opposed to just loving people. It's sick, but it's true. Let me give you one last lesson. The most frightening sin of all, perhaps the most imperceptible sin of all, is the sin of self-righteousness. Here's what I've learned in my 57, almost 58 years of living, that there's a little bit of Pharisee in all of us. And you know why I know that? Because it's in me. Um, sometimes, to be honest, the weight of my own sin and my own weakness uh, makes God's gospel beautiful. And what I f- fight for really is maybe you've been here, maybe you can share this. Like you're just really close to your need and you, you conclude after so many decades of living as a Christian, you go, God, how could you be that gracious? Your gospel really can deal with all this? Like you're never gonna get tired of me? It's gonna superbound always? Like I'm yours and it's perfect and it's established and it's holy and it'll never be taken? Yeah. And I'm telling the gospel myself because the sin wants to tell a different story. And right on the backside of that, what seems to be the appropriate response, without notice, I'll find myself obsessing over someone else's sin. Have you ever been there? I have learned this, too, not only from my own stupidity, but I've learned it from watching us. We are so good at the specks in people's eye and so great at ignoring the forest. That's just kind of how it is for us. It's just admit it that all of us have moments of self-righteousness. Like Simon, we say under our breath, how could they? Or like the Pharisee, why don't they obey the law? Because I'm a law bearer. 
Why aren't they like me? And you hear it. The church talks about it. And let me just tell you, it's embarrassing. That isn't the questions we're supposed to be asking. Self-righteousness is a blinder. You can't see yourself properly and you can't see others at all. That's what self-righteousness does. First Corinthians 4, Paul says, for who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Why is it that it, the only time we seem to be interested in mercy is when it applies to us? In um, the examples of Christ's love, I would, I would tell you it's obvious that if his pattern is to be our pattern, he thought about the lost, period. And if we're thinking about other things, I suppose that we are tripping over our self-righteousness. I will admit it, and if you can relate to me, we'll admit it together. This is a difficult thing for me. Sometimes we behave as if we have something good to offer God, something he could use and be benefited by. We wouldn't say it. We wouldn't even think it, but it's there. Self-righteousness, it blinds us. We're never going to see the woman. We're going to see the guy across the street. We won't see the family down the road, and we're never going to see that people group because they don't, and they haven't and they won't, and they aren't. And we keep filling out a list of things for why um, they don't deserve. And we forget. <laughs> I don't care how big your pile is. You can't pay it. So the only emotional, appropriate reaction is simply love and gratitude. Do you understand? Okay. Uh, this is really hard stuff, and I, I told you it would be, but let's just ask God to help us see it and, and believe it. God, we ask right now for uh, your Spirit's work in our hearts to have the tenderness of Jesus, to have the eyes of Jesus, to have the self-righteousness in our own soul be exposed. God, would you, would you do a work in us so that maybe, maybe a year from now, if we took a, an assessment of how we love, that we'd look even more like Jesus? We can say this, we want it. But because of the blindness of our own hearts, we don't even know where sometimes. So God, keep your work up, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.